0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's red flag law is supposed to prevent homicide and suicide, letting a judge remove someone's firearm if they're a threat. The law is still new, but we now have some sense of how it's working. Attorney General Phil Weiser is our guest. I'll ask who's seeking out these orders and whose guns are being temporarily taken away. Then, an update on I-70 through Glenwood Canyon. And, from Norwood, Colorado, nature writer Craig Childs on some clever birds.
1: A raven can decide it wants to be a mile away, and it lets go of its rock perch, opens its wings, and sails there. I have to get in the car, strap into a seatbelt, or put on shoes and walk for half an hour. Smarter than eagles or peregrines, ravens might feel a little sorry for us.
2: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If someone is homicidal or suicidal, Colorado law allows for the temporary removal of their firearms. That so-called red flag law is not even two years old, but we now have some sense of how it's being used. State Attorney General Phil Weiser's office just put out a report on the law's first full year of existence. And Weiser argues that these extreme risk protection orders are underutilized, and Mr. Attorney General, welcome back.
3: It's great to be with you as always, Ryan.
0: We'll get to frequency in a moment, uh, but first you say that uh, this is really about um, threats that lead people to file these orders, which you know a judge must approve. What sorts of threats?
3: There are two categories, and arguably a third category where both are involved. Someone is thinking about taking their own life, or someone's thinking about taking someone else's life. The standard in the law says someone has to pose a significant risk to themselves or another person. There has to be evidence that demonstrates that risk. And what we saw was that less than 125 successful petitions happened in 2020, which means this law is being used in a very tempered, focused manner about a third of those were threats of suicide a third of those were homicide and actually the other category was some combination of the two
0: of perhaps a murder suicide plot or ideation in other words yep Mm -hmm. Uh, so you say 125 successful uses how many filings of these orders
3: i need to go back to get you those exact numbers Uh, i'll tell you when law enforcement filed petitions they were successful for the there's a temporary order then there's a 364 day more permanent order about a year 85 of the law enforcement petitions were actually granted um, when individuals family members households filed them uh, the rate was a lot less closer to around 15 for that 364 day order um, and there was only about 30 of those petitions filed most of them did come from law enforcement and so I haven't done all the exact math, but not a, not a huge amount filed, but most of those that were filed were by law enforcement. Most of those that were successful were by law enforcement.
0: And let's be clear, law enforcement can file these. And then it's not just anyone in the public uh, among civilians who can file them, but people, uh, for instance, in the same family, right?
3: That's right. You have to actually have the relationship to the person. Um, you can't have a random person just do it. Um, there is a... Uh, A risk that the law could be um, misused. And that was one of the things we looked at is what about other people using the law that was, let's say, more an harassment sort of way. Mm. Um, And there were some cases that were inappropriate. Uh, They didn't go anywhere. Um, One of those cases actually ended up in a perjury investigation and, and charges against an individual who did misuse the law.
0: And so what you're saying is that when law enforcement file for these extreme risk protection orders under this red flag law, they are far more successful than when civilians try, but they also do it more
3: often, correct? That is exactly correct. And there's a good reason for this, Ryan. When individuals are concerned about a family member they should go to law enforcement and what i believe is happening we didn't trace back all the cases to say this definitively is that they are going to law enforcement and then law enforcement does an investigation and if they're confident that there's really a significant risk there law enforcement will go forward with the petition mm. um, and the individual's right to file petition is really a backstop uh, the the main emphasis of the law that we believed was going to be used is as a tool for law enforcement. That is how the law has been used.
0: But you indeed argue that it should be used more often. Why why do you say that?
3: The concern is, and we don't know how much of a concern it is, so um, we're going to do our part. It's not clear that law enforcement or the public knows as much as, let's say, we would like that this tool exists. So if you're a member of the public out there, and you're worried about somebody, a child, a brother, who's thinking about taking their own life and you know they have a firearm, does everybody in that situation know this tool exists and they can go to law enforcement and use it? Does law enforcement let people know if you want to file a red flag order, here's how you do it? Hmm. Um, I've heard of some situations, this is anecdotal, but of people going to law enforcement asking about this procedure and getting told, um, we don't really have anything, we don't know about it. So there is a Education effort that we're going to work on, both on the law enforcement side and on the public side. So people know this procedure is there. There's a proper use for it, and it's to save lives.
0: And I think inherent in that then is an unevenness uh, in in the use of a red flag law from law enforcement agency to law enforcement agency. That is to say, not everyone is using it evenly, correct?
3: That's correct. There, there are obviously some agencies that have developed a greater level of comfort greater level of awareness, and part of what we're going to keep doing is helping to build that comfort, build that awareness, and I think that will happen over time. As we have stories we can tell, and this report tells those stories, of law enforcement successful using this procedure, others will use it. We have seen over the first year of the law's use. Some of the sheriffs who might have said we weren't sure about this law have actually gone ahead and used this law, because when you're in this situation and it's someone's life's at stake, This procedure is a way forward where you can save lives.
0: It's not just a question of education, though. To quote your report, some agencies have expressed hesitancy about relying on this process because of concerns of officer safety. Help us understand those concerns.
3: We heard a lot about this during the discussion of the law itself, which is if an officer is told to retrieve firearms, will that retrieval process end up being a dangerous one that would put officers in harm's way. We didn't see that concern borne out in the law's implementation. And part of what has happened is agencies have found ways to implement the law to retrieve firearms in a safe manner, and that we're going to keep working towards best practice on that front. We think there's a lot of, again, learning that we're going to have. And this report is encouraging that we're, we're learning how to use this law. We're getting the word out how to use it and it's being used safely.
0: I want to note that in the last legislative session, Colorado created an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Uh, Do you see a role for that office in trying to educate around the red flag law?
3: We do. And we look forward to working with that office. We have two public awareness campaigns that are On the runway, one of which has kind of already taken off a bit. We'll keep working on it. It's around safe gun storage. That's another area where awareness and where cooperation with law enforcement can make a big difference. Guns that aren't secured securely are at risk for individuals, particularly young people uh, taking their own lives. So we worry about safe gun storage. We worry about it in cars as well. We also want to get the word out. We'll work with that office to get the word out about this red flag law, what it does, how people can use it.
0: Are you still seeing resistance from some law enforcement agencies on on political or constitutional grounds? Because uh, while the red flag law did have some backing from law enforcement um, and in fact was inspired by uh, the killing of a Douglas County sheriff's deputy named Zachary Parish, um, there was opposition from some law enforcement. Uh, Do you see that remain? You said it's eroding to some extent.
3: We have seen sheriffs who previously said they had concerns about this law, go ahead to use this law. And that to me is a healthy step. I I recognize their concerns that are still there. And I recognize there have been skeptics. What we would like people to do is to look at this report, look at the data. And if you still have concerns, we wanna hear those concerns so that we can take account of them and help implement this law. Part of the arguments around the second amendment we're we're gonna be taking firearms away from responsible gun owners. We don't believe that is what has happened. We believe this law is targeted to remove firearms from people who are at serious risk of hurting other people. And we thus see this law as a life-saving law that addresses gun violence and under the Supreme Court's decisions, it does not run afoul of the Second Amendment. A number of courts have examined that issue. We've been in those cases defending the law And every court has upheld this law as constitutional.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and State Attorney General Phil Weiser is with us. On to just a few other topics before we go. Uh, For the last year, your office has been investigating Aurora Police, uh, the department's patterns and practices. Uh, This came after the death of Elijah McClain in police custody, which sparked protests. Uh, This investigation has been going on for a while, and I don't think we've heard updates lately. What can you tell us?
3: So we can tell you that we've had a a thorough investigation. This is the first use of a new law that we have, and it gives us the authority to conduct these civil rights investigations. And we're committed, particularly for this first investigation, to doing a thorough effort. When we are completed of, of this investigation, we issue a report Uh, And then the city of Aurora will have a chance to respond. So we don't have any timetable we can announce at this point. We do believe this is an important law and we look forward to using it to help protect civil rights and to help elevate the quality of policing.
0: Is Aurora complying? Are they?
3: So we are not yet at a stage where um, we're going to have those discussions. That comes after the report. Uh, With respect to complying with the investigation, they have absolutely been complying and enabling us to do our work. And once we get to the report stage, uh, that'll trigger another opportunity for dialogue, and we'll see where we go from there.
0: Let's talk briefly about opioids. In the last two decades, 7,600 Coloradans have died of overdoses, and many more have struggled with addiction. It is why states and local governments have gone after drug makers and distributors, uh, including Colorado, which stands to receive hundreds of millions of dollars in settlement money. Uh, how do you and the locals foresee that money being used? Your office has obviously been involved in these legal matters.
3: Ryan, this is a real top priority for our office. We're gonna get around $400 million from these lawsuits, companies like Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family. It is it is an American tragedy. It ha- it's happened nowhere else that we've seen the type of overdose deaths, the impact on lives, families, and communities. We need to address this on multiple fronts on the supply front to continue to address the supply of these dangerous drugs that are getting into hands of people and a number of these litigation efforts are going to curtail the distribution and access to opioids we're doing other drug interdiction work that is also complementing this and obviously overseeing the medical profession as well on the demand side treatment and recovery are essential for people who are struggling with opioid use disorder we want to make sure that we give them a way out. And right now in Colorado, according to the latest analysis, we have 16% of the amount of drug treatment that we need. And we don't have enough drug recovery efforts. And finally, we got to work hard on how we educate and prevent uses of these dangerous drugs. Part of that's destigmatizing this conversation. We need people to acknowledge they're struggling with their mental health, they're struggling with using substances and how they can get to a better place so that we. Make it, again, something that people are more aware of, and hopefully we will turn this around. It has been, as I mentioned, just such a tragic and painful crisis here in Colorado, like our nation. Uh,
0: just briefly, you say there's about 16% of the treatment for opioid addiction uh, that is actually needed um, versus the need, that is. Is, is what, $400 million? Is that enough money? to grow that to anywhere near
3: 100%? No, this is what's hard. The impact that we're seeing in our criminal justice system where for example we we're not giving enough people medication assisted treatment who are in jails. The need for more harm reduction strategies like making sure that naloxone or fentanyl strips are available. There are so many needs drug treatment most notably but also the others I mentioned. This money is a down payment. There's also money Colorado has from the uh, Recovery Act, uh, that's $450 million for behavioral health, which obviously touches on many of these same needs. There's other sources. We need to take this opportunity and catalyze investment in these areas to help us address what has been a real crisis. It's having a huge impact on our criminal justice system. In mm-hmm. many cases, people are sitting in jail because they can't get help. I know you're uh, reporting at CPR about what happened in Alamosa County and yep. still happening yep. there is right on point.
0: Thanks so much. That is Colorado's Attorney General, Phil Weiser. It's like a soap opera, except it's real life and it's not entertaining. The story of I-70 through Glenwood Canyon brings new twists and turns every day. The latest is that CDOT expects one lane in each direction to open sometime tomorrow, Saturday. Mudslides, of course, shut down. One of Colorado's most important corridors late last month. Chief Engineer at the Colorado Department of Transportation Steve Harrelson is back with us. Hi, Steve. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, and uh, I look forward to any news you'll share. How's the Saturday reopening looking?
4: It's it's looking very, very well. Um, we made a, an immense amount of progress yesterday in the last two days. Um, as we speak, they are are paving the, uh, the last big section there at Blue Gulch on the on the uh, eastbound side. So it's the lower level. So they, they started paving that this morning, about seven, I believe, and they should be wrapping that up. And then there are a few other spots in the Canyon that they, they have to put some uh, asphalt patching down and they're going to be doing that through the day. Um, One other big uh, effort that we have going on is uh, XL energy. Um, Yesterday installed some, some power poles. We had the, their power line, which supplies both the hanging lake tunnel and the uh, Shoshona power plant um, was was knocked out by the the blue Gulch slide. So they have uh, they've installed two bit two new power poles, and uh, I think this afternoon they're gonna try to string the cables on those power pl- poles and and that's the last big thing that we have to do. So um after that, we're you know setting traffic control and and putting up cones and putting down striping for the for the uh, the traffic switch tomorrow and and we hope to get it open. This has
0: been about so much more than just mud and debris removal. You mentioned there
4: paving and painting, and the power needs.
0: Will speed limits be reduced?
4: Yes, where um, th- you know that's one of the things we have to do. Um, we have variable speed limits in the canyon, which are which can be um, you know adjusted uh, you know remotely. But some of those signs were, are not working quite right, because, you know, the the cables that, that bring the remote control to them are are compromised. So, um, you know, we're putting up sign panels to, to get those speed limits down. I, th- I think uh, 35 or 40 miles an hour is what we're looking to do. You know, there's still a lot of, uh, uh, I'll call it dried mud and such on the road. So, you know, we don't want a, a lot of gravel flying. So we got to keep those speeds down. But you know 35 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour through a through that canyon is is far better than the detour
0: what stands in the way of opening all of the lanes in both directions
4: so the the blue gulch area is was the most heavily damaged and for those of you who who remember the canyon or been through the canyon there's a a, a large section of what i call the upper deck that is cantilevered out. So it's, there's like a, an eight foot, um, span that, that goes out over a retaining wall. And in the blue gulch area, that, uh, that span was, was completely snapped off. So, um, we're going to have to rebuild that. It's a, I think about a 80 foot long section where, where there's not enough room for one lane. And then there's some similar damage on the retaining walls on the lower slab too. So, um, the uh we've we've got the one lane open in each direction um over the last couple of weeks we've prepared some uh repair plans for those structures and we released those to uh contractors last night now uh, i think this morning we're having a job showing with there are nine contractors who've expressed interest in working on it so all nine of those contractors are up in the canyon hmm. they are looking at You know, at these structures that they would be bidding on to repair, um, we're going to try to have the bids open in about a week, and the goal would be to have the the permanent repair contract, um, you know, moving um, about ten days from now. So, uh, you know, it's going to take several months probably to get that those repairs done. Several months, Um, but but our goal is to to get four lanes going uh, as quickly as we can, hopefully, well before Thanksgiving.
0: There were mudslides before the catastrophic one in Glenwood Canyon, and we were seeing in the weeks prior the canyon opening and closing based on severe weather warnings. Uh, by the way, the forecast looks mostly dry over the next few days, with the exception, uh, quoting the Weather Service here, of a stray shower or thunderstorm. Um, but should we expect that open and close again pattern to continue?
4: You, you know, I think it uh, just depends on the weather report. Um you know our our rule of thumb is that uh, if if we're expecting severe thunderstorms, we're going to close it because these these uh, slides are still not not stable. We've been fortunate in the last ten days or so that that the monsoon has dried up a little bit. So um, we've we've been able to make a lot of progress. And we've also been able to clean out these areas where the debris have you know I'll I'll say filled up the the draws right upstream of the highway so now there's there's some capacity if if more more uh material comes down that we'll have a place to to store it and it won't compromise the road mm. um I will say that the the two storms um that happened um uh, a a couple weeks ago on first Thursday night and then Saturday night were were extremely heavy they were um close to to uh four or five inches of rain um, in those two storms and one of them was particularly focused on blue gulch um, so those were very unusual thunderstorms normally uh, glenwood gets about uh two and a half inches of rain the entire month of july and they got four or five inches um you know in in four days so you know we're, we're hopeful that if even if it does rain again it won't be that um extreme um, but again we'll be prepared our our number one goal is to not get anybody hurt and you know thus far we've we've not had any injuries um, and we're going to continue with that care
0: on monday my colleague Avery Lill is going to have an interview with US senator Michael Bennett i'm just curious if there's anything you'd want to say or ask of colorado's congressional delegation at this
4: point um you know they've they've been very supportive of us we um, we put in an uh, emergency um, declaration with with the feds, and we've gotten some emergency um, funding from fe- the Federal Highway Administration to address this. Um, and the congressional delegation has been very helpful and and very supportive of what we're trying to do. Um, you know, part of of our emergency um, cost estimate has been, some money to look at uh, hardening some alternate routes that would would uh, make the detour uh, a little less onerous. Um, and that, you know, that
0: could include, for instance, we have just a few seconds here, Steve. That could include Cottonwood Pass, correct?
4: A- absolutely, yep. that's the obvious one. And you know, we realize that that's a county road, and and we're committed to working with uh, both Eagle and Garfield County to get that built. You know, in a way that works for them and, and also works for the, the other citizens of the Western Slope that, that need to have quick access through. Um, so yeah. we, we'll see how that comes out. But, uh, and it comes
0: with that, its own logistical challenges as well because it's uh, somewhat off of the traditional I-70 corridor. So that's CDOT chief engineer Steve Harrelson. We talked about I-70 through the canyon, partially reopening in both directions sometime Saturday. This is CPR News.
5: In 2012, Fred Harris watched cannabis legalization pass him by from a prison cell here in Colorado. Recreational pot was now legal, but that didn't change anything for him. And it left his teenage son in limbo. Like,
3: I kind of just like consider a person like that dead, like, you know, unfortunately.
5: I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Here, Fred's story on the latest episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Edgar Allan Poe famously wrote about a raven in 1845. Almost two centuries later, it remains the defining piece about these wily birds. But nature writer Craig Childs decided to take them on in a new regular column for his hometown paper. The Norwood Post agreed to let us run this inaugural piece called As the Raven Flies.
1: It seems like ravens are always up to something. Two fly overhead, and one peels off to circle back and look at you. It feels like a patrol, and they are checking in, keeping watch over the territory. What are the land creatures up to now? We think the town is ours, the highway certainly belongs to us, but when you watch ravens atop fence posts, their pearl black eyes watching you in return, you wonder for a moment if the place isn't theirs. When the one raven comes back to circle you, you shield your eyes to follow it around the sky. It flashes across the sun, its shadow streaking over you. You have to wonder if it meant to do that. Ravens are like that. I live in the mesas and canyon edges on the outskirts of Norwood. The agricultural fields have more crows, while the farther, rougher places tend to have ravens. Crows are smaller and higher-pitched when they call. They are field birds. Ravens are sky animals. They are nearly twice the size of crows, bigger beaks, bigger heads, wider wingspans. They live over the hill where the road turns to dirt and the earth opens wide. Canyon edges look across a high desert sea, pinned down at the edges by gray, midsummer mountains. This is where I live, out with the ravens. Before this, I lived outside of Crawford, Colorado. My home was nestled into boulders at the base of a rock tower, foot of the West Elk Mountains. The tower, called Needle Rock, was a bastion of birds. Peregrine falcons had an eyrie on one side, ravens nested in the middle with a beard of twigs and small branches that spilled from a crack, and golden eagles nested around the other side in what looked like a mattress of tree parts they'd somehow flown up the cliff. There was always a show going on, peregrines popping smaller birds out of the air, ravens making their daily racket, eagles taking off for day-long forays, their wings flat to the horizon as they sailed away and didn't come back till evening. For 18 years I lived at the base of this rock, watching its comings and goings. I realized that birds were the thing happening, not me. Humans grind and toil on the ground, and we must look like troglodytes from overhead. A raven can decide it wants to be a mile away, and it lets go of its rock perch, opens its wings, and sails there. I have to get in the car, strap into a seatbelt, or put on shoes and walk for half an hour. Smarter than eagles or peregrines, ravens might feel a little sorry for us. The ravens around Norwood probably have a slightly different dialect from those near Crawford, I haven't been able to pick it out, but researchers studying corvids, a group of birds that includes crows, magpies, and jays, have found that ravens use languages. Corvids are known as the most intelligent of the birds, able to recognize themselves in a mirror, remembering and identifying people's faces. If a raven from Crawford were to visit Norwood, they probably would have noticed at least the different accent. I moved to Norwood several years ago and soon found ravens nesting in a cliff of spalled-off boulders above Natarita Creek. Whenever I walked by, skirting the rim during nesting season in the spring, ravens would spill out and circle me. One day, a single raven rose up on the wind from below. It hovered in front of me, pinning me with its gaze as if saying, Don't do anything stupid. Message delivered. It sank from view. Ravens are like that. They own the place.
0: Nature, science, and adventure writer Craig Childs lives in Norwood, Colorado. He read As the Raven Flies, the first of what will be regular columns for the Norwood Post and Telluride Daily Planet. Find a link on the Colorado Matters podcast page later today at CPR.org. If I was a raven I'd fly on to the
6: heavens, I'd fly Fly to to all my loved ones, if I was a ray.
0: Horses lend themselves to stories, writes Sarah Maslinier, and Maslinier knows stories. She has crisscrossed the globe as a staff reporter for the New York Times, and when she's on assignment, if there's a sliver of free time, she checks out a place's horses. Her new book is Horse Crazy, the story of a woman and a world in love with an animal. She has a chapter on how black cowboys have been largely left out of the story of the American West. We spoke in June. And Sarah, welcome to the program.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
0: In this book, you describe a lifelong love of horses, but in the past, you've been hesitant to talk about this passion. Why?
7: Yes. Yeah, so my book was my coming out as a horse girl. As a reporter for the New York Times, I cover incredibly challenging, dark corners of the world. And I was always concerned that if I were to reveal that so much of my soul is caught up with ponies, I wouldn't be taken seriously. And then I was speaking to a friend, a fellow writer, and uh, about what I might write a book about. And he said to me, Uh, why not horses? That's your main passion. And I explained my uh, self-consciousness. And he said the immortal words. He said, Sarah, passion translates. That's all people want to read. Whatever it's about, it has to be a true passion and they'll get it. And that began my coming out. And actually, hmm. Ryan, ever since, uh, my bosses say, you know, there's a lot of horse news in the New York Times lately. I wonder what that has to do with you. So I've uh, I've included it in my journalism as well a little bit.
0: These intersect the idea of the horse world and then the general news beats that you cover. Mm-hmm. Is there any part of you that was afraid to uh, come out, as you say, because I think of the horse world, the equine world, as so rarefied in some ways, as as so wealthy and maybe privileged. Was that part of this?
7: You're absolutely right. And I'm the daughter of immigrants of a Holocaust survivor. And in the book, I unpack why I was so committed to this sport, in which I'm an outsider, right? This is the world of Jackie Onassis, and uh, it's highly elite and waspy, and I felt like an interloper. And that's exactly it. Um, My compulsion to be involved in this sport, I realized, was sort of passing, much in the way uh, my father had survived uh, Hitler by having a false identity as a Catholic and hiding in plain sight. I actually felt that intergenerational trauma of hiding in plain sight in the horse world.
0: Hmm. It's an interesting parallel to draw. I love how you describe horses as having piano key teeth. I don't think I'll ever see them quite the same way again if I look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, You name Uh, each chapter of the book after a prominent horse you've met. And Swamper is the title of the chapter about black cowboys. Who is Swamper?
7: Sure. So Swamper is an ungainly old nag uh, who has uh, quite a bit of talent in him. And he was an overlooked horse in which a cowboy by the name of Larry Callis found beauty. And that's a a really perfect parallel to the story of the erasure of the black cowboys. And I should note, um, I worked for a black cowboy in Harlem uh, at the New York City Riding Academy, who was the founder of the Black Rodeo. And we used to have that on Lenox Avenue in New York City, where I'm from, believe it or not. And in the erasure of black cowboys from the American story, one in four cowboys in the pioneer era were black. I saw a parallel to my own people's almost literal erasure from this planet in what my father went through. So I became very committed to that story. So I decided to ride out uh, with Larry Callis, who was actually a postman who spent all of his life savings to found the Museum of the Black Cowboy in Rosenberg, Texas, which is his shrine to cowboys who are enshrined really nowhere else. Uh, The Bill Pickett Rodeo, uh, which is a black cowboy rodeo that actually takes place in Denver, Colorado with the MLK Rodeo of Champions on pause this year, unfortunately, is named after Bill Pickett. He invented the rodeo sport of bulldogging, which is wrestling a calf to the ground, but he was only inducted into the Rodeo Hall of Fame in 1989, uh, even though he invented it 100 years before, and he was its first black inductee. And uh, that erasure is something I unpack in Horse Crazy.
0: I think, of course, of Denver's Black American West Museum, which fills in many of the blanks in this history as well. And there's a lot I want to follow up on. So Larry Callis owns this horse, Swamper, and a cowboy, a former country crooner. What is his sense... Of why this history was either, it's hard to say lost, because in in some ways it was never told in the first place to the broader public. But what is his sense of how this was erased, why this wasn't better told?
7: Yes, and I, I think you're exactly right. It's not lost, that's a passive Uh, descriptor, right? It was erased. It was removed from the narrative. When you see John Wayne on the silver screen, that's the archetypal cowboy. There are no black faces under Stetson's uh, in the cowboy Westerns of our mind. And yet they were there. The West was integrated, in fact, because life is just too darn hard to keep up those same divisions, that were there on the East Coast, right? You had to all work together to wrangle those cows and and, and live that frontier life. There is a historian who's recently passed away who is a Jew from New York City, uh, just like me, of black cowboys. Uh, Lauren Katz. And he says the most incredible thing. He says, if black people came into the American narrative, they came at the end of a whip and in chains. And that's not the American cowboy story people wanted to remember. And that's why they've been removed. Because if the story of the American pioneer spirit, right, as the daughter of immigrants, that feels Like it's my birthright too, right? That's somehow the American story. And if you realize some Americans in that story were impressed into it brutally, that's not the best of us. And the cowboy story is supposed to be the best of us.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Sarah Maslinier of the New York Times who crisscrosses the globe covering all sorts of news, but has written a book now called Horse Crazy, the story of a woman and a world in love with an animal. So we rang up Larry Callis, director of the Black Cowboy Museum in Texas. Uh, I'll say that he has a condition now that affects his vocal cords, which actually sidelined his country music career. And it means that he can be difficult to understand on the phone. So I'm just going to read some of what he told my producer, Carla Jimenez. My dad was a cowboy. My grandpa was a cowboy. All my uncles were cowboys. I found out all my relatives were cowboys in the 1850s. I didn't know my great-great-grandfathers were cowboys. We didn't know our history. When we were taught history, we weren't taught the right history, especially about the black cowboy. Callus goes on to say, you know what the white guy was doing? He was imitating the black cowboys. The white man wasn't called a cowboy in the 1800s. He was called a cow hand or a cowman or cow puncher or cow driver. But never did you call a white man a cowboy because he said, I am not your slave. I'm not your servant because that was the slang then. Uh, Help Mm -hmm. us unpack that. Even the term cowboy may have racist roots, right?
7: Uh, Yes, exactly right. So in the era of the terms coinage, which was uh, the late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, you wouldn't call a white man a boy. It was pejorative. You had a yard boy, you you had a sheep boy, you had a house boy, and those were all enslaved people. And so there are some uh, etymologists that believe the root of that word speaks to the blackness of the profession. And I'll go one further. We should talk about the horse racing world a little bit, Ryan. The entire thoroughbred industry was predicated on enslaved human labor. People were bought from West Africa specifically for their equestrian prowess. And the first ever winner of the first ever Kentucky Derby was a black man. And the trainer of that horse was a freed slave. And in the early days of American thoroughbred racing, people ran the horses they owned with the humans they owned on their backs. And that is not a history that has been brought to light uh, in the same way that it has, you know, sports teams have changed their mascots and plantations have had a, a national reckoning. But American thoroughbred horse racing owes its riches to enslaved black people.
0: There's something I want to circle back to, uh, and you indeed write about this in the book Horse Crazy, and that is working for a horseman in <laughs> in New York City, uh, yeah. like kind of on these islands that are between, what is it, like Queens and Manhattan, I think.
7: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's just going to strike people as surprising, I think, that there would be horse barns is smack dab in the middle of New York City. What's the story here?
7: Sure. So I'll let you know if you're horse crazy like I am, like Larry is, like so many of us are, you will find horses by hook or by crook wherever you can. And I'm an unusual horsewoman in that I'm born and raised in New York City. Uh, I used to ride horses in a four-story apartment building, believe it or not, where the horses climbed up and down stairs to their stables upstairs. (laughs) Yes, uh, it closed in 2007.
0: I guess that would be a a trot-up instead of a walk-up.
7: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. I should have used that. Um, and uh, I uh, was a mounted parks enforcement officer uh, chasing truants in Central Park as a teenager when I myself was a truant on my days off. And then I ended up working on a little island in the middle of the Harlem River uh, for Dr. Blair and Mrs. Blair. Do not call them by their first name. They are Dr. and Mrs. Blair, uh, who ran a little riding academy. And we. Uh, would have inner city children come and pet the horses. And I would uh, demonstrate uh, different paces on the horses. Um, But we only had three horses and we would have 40 students a day. And one day I said to Dr. Blair, I spoke up to him for the first time. I said, Dr. Blair, um, you know, I I felt like I was just demonstrating my privilege as a a a well-off white woman here on a horse in front of these children. And I felt very self-conscious. I said, what are we teaching at this riding academy? where we don't teach riding. You know, we just teach history of, of, of cowboys and black cowboys to these mostly minority children. And he said to me, Sarah, I am showing these children that they're part of the American story and that they've always been and that there are other lives out there for them than the ones they feel that are inevitable, laid out before them in these inner city worlds they're from. And he said, Sarah, we are not teaching children to ride. We're teaching children to dream. Hmm. And I will never forget those words. And that is the importance of telling these erased stories. Uh, um, You are telling people that they are part of the American story and they always have been. And not only are horses their heritage, America is their heritage too.
0: Uh, You may have mentioned this. I want to make sure that we flag it. Here, Dr. Blair started the now-defunct New York City Black World Championship Rodeo. So the barns where you worked, are they no longer around, or the Academy?
7: No, they're around. Uh, Dr. Blair is in his 90s, and he is still running it. And uh, he had a pause for COVID, um, but he's pretty unstoppable. He is a force of nature, as is Mrs. Blair.
0: It's amazing how you write, the Academy is under the gritty shadow of a psychiatric ward. It's really kind of... (laughs) <laughs> shoved in there in New York City. I have what might sound like a silly question, but have you thought about whether fundamentally horses like to be ridden?
7: Absolutely. I and mean, it is something I unpack. I My answer to that question is, it's not a question of like or enjoy. These are creatures that for millennia have been bred to be a perfect complement to humankind. We've created them to be incredibly useful for us, their backs are broad. To carry us, but their legs are spindly and their femurs are the size of a human femur carrying 1200 pounds. Uh, We've made them pretty useless to themselves, but of incredible utility and meaning for us. And so, in that creature we have created in our image, we owe it a tremendous amount. And wild horses, uh, as you know, Ryan, are are not wild, they're feral. Uh, They are bred horses that have been released uh, in to the so-called wild, and, and that's why they have such a, a challenging time with them. They're not really meant to be there, mm. um, but they're not meant to exist outside of us. We've created something holy for us, and we owe it a tremendous amount.
0: Sarah maslin is the author of Horse Crazy. She's also a reporter for the New York Times. We spoke in June. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In Tokyo, Paralympians compete later this month, including some Colorado athletes. CPR's Megan Verlee introduces us to a first-time competitor whom Megan knows from her Denver Judo club.
2: All right, guys, come on, grab partner. On hot, sweaty evenings this Yay! week, you can find members of the Paralympic Judo team working out on the mats at Denver Judo. It's the home turf for two of the team's coaches and the club where one of this year's competitors got his start.
6: My name is Robert Tanaka. I've been doing Judo for 16 years now. Started when I was five years old.
2: Tanaka's first inspiration was actually the head of Denver Judo, a Paralympic gold medalist himself, who came to talk to Tanaka's class at the Anchor Center for the Blind.
6: Having the same disabilities myself, for me, that that was just, you know, something that I wanted to do, it, it was like, the very peak of judo for for people with visual impairments.
2: In the years since taking up judo, Tanaka has traveled the world to compete, becoming an elite player. Last year, he was just a few tournaments away from qualifying for the Paralympic team when he learned the games were put on hold. He'd been training so hard while also going to college full-time that he was on the edge of burnout. Learning he'd have to wait another year to compete was enough to make him rethink everything
6: in your mind you just you just want to quit but you just got to keep going um, and i'm happy that both my coaches and my parents kind of pushed me through that time
2: and now Tanaka is just weeks from realizing his paralympic dream when he steps on the mat at the same venue in Tokyo where judo made its olympic debut almost 60 years ago
6: being japanese american i have that you know cultural aspect as well you know i'm in the country of where judo was born and i'm representing my country usa so both of that combined, I, I really feel like that kind of kind of makes who I am in a way.
2: Tanaka says he knows the nerves may take over when it's finally his turn to compete, but he hopes he can enjoy the moment. He's far from the only Coloradan headed to the Paralympics. More than a dozen athletes from the state will compete in the games. I'm Megan Verley, CPR News.
0: And the opening ceremony for the Tokyo Paralympics is August 24th. The East Troublesome Fire in Grant County last year left a burn scar, and other scars, too. They're the subject of a new musical at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts. Here is CPR's arts and culture reporter, Monica Castillo.
5: (laughs) The air is alive with the sound of music and laughter. The team behind the news show Wildfire is setting up for the day's rehearsal. It's the first new production at the DCPA, since the pandemic tore up the theater schedule last spring. The group has only been practicing together for a few weeks, but already it feels like a reunion. Actors and musicians who miss working together are playing once again in person. Through clear plastic masks, their smiles shine through. Wildfire is a Colorado story that's becoming more familiar in recent years. Fires have scorched hundreds of thousands of acres in the state over the past decade. It's affected every Coloradan in some way. Playwright Jessica Koska says she first experienced the natural disaster in 2013 when the Black Forest fire burned around her parents' home in Colorado Springs.
8: I remember contemplating as a person in my young 20s, like how many different colors the grief and the loss and the process of recovery and moving through something like that was. Casca worked with History
5: Colorado's Museum of Memory to interview survivors of the East Troublesome Fire with dramaturg Lindy Rosario. She then blended the experiences of 30 people to create new characters who represent a swath of Grand County. She used folk music from local artists to emphasize the show's Colorado roots. New production will even be held outside as a nod to the state's love of outdoor music. And the company kept the set minimal so they can take the show on the road, including to Grand County. Costca says talking to survivors helped her bring their
8: stories to life on the stage. One young person who shared with us that when she was evacuating, she forgot shoes. You know, she's running around, she got all her animals and backpack. And to me, like, that's true. You know, that is how that goes.
5: It's then up to the actors to bring the characters from the page to the stage in just a few short weeks. In a large cavernous rehearsal hall at the DCPA, actor Rob Morrison says, Coming back to rehearsals feels a little different than usual after over a year's pandemic pause.
0: It's been strange coming back. It's a great feeling, but it definitely, there's some
5: cobwebs. As exciting as it's been for these actors to work on a new show, actor Marco Robinson says, their focus has also been on the climate crisis that sparks the story.
0: It's even more awkward right now because I hear that I-70 just got closed down because of the mudslide, which is as a result of the fires that happened last year. So we're still feeling the after effects, so I feel like it's
5: still timely. Playwright Koska says she hopes the show helps humanize the people behind the wildfire headlines and shows how personal these disasters are for our neighbors.
8: We are at a moment with climate change and with wildfires in Colorado where we have to figure out new ways to start these conversations and to start big and imaginative and emotional conversations because communicating in terms of acres and statistics isn't going to do it. You know, when it's your trails or your home or, you know, your places, climate change feels big or it feels global, but it's actually local and it's Incredibly personal, and we, you know, feel it in our hearts. Just be wild safe. Wildfire
5: will run August 16th through the 20th at various outdoor locations around the state, including Denver and the towns of Dillon and Winter Park. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News.
0: And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our radio ensemble. Carl Bielick.
2: Allie Budner.
3: Anthony Cotton.
2: Andrea Dukakis. Michelle
8: Fulcher.
3: Matt Hers. Michael Hughes.
8: Carla Jimenez. Avery Lil,
0: Pedro Lumbrano.
8: Patrice Mondragon.
0: Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.